Hello and welcome to the Forbes India Special Report podcast series in association with theindicast.com. My name is Abhishek and joining me over the phone are three senior writers from Forbes India and editors who along with their team have put in more than 3 months of painstaking effort to put together the Independence Day special report. I have with me Dinesh Narayan from Delhi. Hi Dinesh. Hi. And we have a familiar name Kuku Paul with whom we spoke a few weeks back. Hi Kuku. Hello Abhishek. Good to have you back. And uh, we also have the principal correspondent on the project, Udit Mishra. Hey, Udit. Hi, everything. Uh, let's uh, get on with it because it's a pretty comprehensive report. And I think the first one is for you, Dinesh. Uh, you see, generally we have one or two authors collaborate on a story, but uh, here we have a string of authors from Forbes India writing an elaborate issue, and it's the independent special report. So, what's it about? Basically, when we started thinking about this project a few months ago, we were trying to see what is the value we could bring to the readers of Forbes India, which is essentially probably concentrated in the business circles. We found that you know there is a lot of interest among them about what is the engagement with uh, the world that India has at the moment, and how is this thing developing? Because as we plug into a more globalized world, this becomes important for businesses as well as uh, policymakers. So that is the reason why we took uh, foreign policy as a subject and tried to explore it and see where India stands today and where we are headed in the probably next five to ten years. So then, let's start uh, with the special reports, the series of essays that uh, you have collaborated on, all of you. And one of them is the complex relationship that exists between countries. And one of the articles starts wherein you draw an analogy of uh, how difficult or complex the relationship between U.S. and Pakistan is. Uh, and you draw a parallel with the Gordian knot from the Roman Empire. One thing probably I should have mentioned about the Gordian knot is that the Gordian knot doesn't have any loose ends. That is why it is so difficult to untie. Right. That is what happened in this case also, because when America signed the military pact with Pakistan in '54, at that point of time the Cold War had begun and it was intensifying, and they considered it as a bulwark against uh, probable Soviet aggression. In that context, we were the only country in this region, or only large country in this region, which was definitely on the Soviet side. because of our need for arms our need for aid and uh, that's how this whole region got a uh, sort of uh, divided into two camps even though we were the leaders of uh, non aligned movement but that sort of complicated the situation so much in asia and the region uh, around that nobody knew how this whole thing would play out mm-hmm. and it became something sort of a garden knot because there were no loose ends there no way to untie this thing and it, it became complicated even more as years went by so in in other words actually alexander had it easy because he just used a sword to cut it off in this case yeah unfortunately we don't have the option today right and, and let's talk about the trade associations that you have spent an elaborate time on udit if you could chip in here there are many trade associations that india is a part of especially with its neighbors however the sentiment from the article says that they haven't been as successful as we might have liked for example the sark summit you know we keep meeting every two years but there is nothing significant that comes out of it when you compare it with asean or nafta where does india stand in relationship with its neighbors when it comes to trade it's actually uh, quite a complicated situation because uh, there are doubts within the minds of many of these neighbors mm-hmm. on whether or not they can actually benefit 
while trade in terms of uh, numbers may not be that great yet india has kept pushing for greater interaction on trade because that's an easy way i mean it's much easier to first start trading than to solve all the complicated political or security issues can you think of a few so, examples where you think it has worked mm-hmm. sri lanka is a very a very good example ever since the death of rajiv gandhi who was our uh, former prime minister relations had gone totally out of control in the sense that there was no clarity on how india is going to interact with sri lanka mm-hmm. in the future however this uh, trade pact with um, sri lanka in 2000 has definitely improved the, the political uh, standing of india in sri lanka the acceptance level of the two countries amongst each other and that has primarily happened because while the trade pact is there uh, a free trade agreement sri lanka has benefited more than india has benefited from the same pact the games for india is that is it's largely strategic you know they now have a position where they can talk to sri lanka in confidence they can take many so this can actually uh, not only help as an example for india to interact with other troubled neighbors like um, our relationship with say, bangladesh or with pakistan uh-huh. but also helps india get a stature within the grouping that you know this is a benevolent partner right a bigger partner more dominant but benevolent uh, at the same time everybody agrees that the trade agreements are not necessarily made uh, within the neighborhood for increasing numbers per se often the real gain is non economic the more strategic or political gains that you get out of it now that's interesting so in other words you're saying it's it's more to have more countries on your side and trade is one way to do it trade in that sense is is an easier topic to sort of converse on mm-hmm. than maybe security or uh, or many of these uh, very crucial say border issues right and just the opposite example would be on the other side that is pakistan the pakistan is relevant to india's success or failure in almost every topic that we talk about nowadays and so i'm moving on to the to the next report that uh, you have sculpted all of you where you talk about how india and pakistan are linked by water so can you tell us more about it kuku wherein how water of all the things uh, has come in the picture and you chose to cover that the trigger was something that happened in pakistan earlier this year when the indus went dry and they were having huge water problems and this was uh, the terrorist organizations or like the jamaat ud dawa had started uh, using water as an issue instead of kashmir really so that we thought was a was a real strategic shift there because they were uh, protesting against their impression or rather what they're saying is that india is stopping the waters because indus is shared between the two countries and what they're saying is there are some power projects that are being built in india which is what's uh, stopping the water from flowing into pakistan and they made it a big issue in pakistan earlier this year and they said water flows or blood we had a delegation that went from india there was an indus water treaty that we signed with pakistan way back in 1960 and now they are saying that we are not adhering to this and um, that has been causing a lot of issues and our, earlier on there was a mission from india about two months ago that was in pakistan and uh, we knew that this was a flashpoint really in fact within india there is so much dispute that goes on within the various states on water and um, on our borders uh, this is something that is that runs far deeper whether it is in bangladesh or nepal but we also thought that there were interesting positive things that were happening for instance with bhutan mm-hmm. we've been able to collaborate very well 
to work on joint hydro projects with Bhutan here. And that's a sort of an example that really we could use to iron out these issues. And in fact, uh, there were a couple of water experts that we spoke to who gave an example of successful partnerships that have happened where other problems were ironed out because the water problem was solved. Because water is such an emotive issue. In fact, now it's uh, in the months that have passed since we've been doing the report, the situation has reached the other side where there are floods now in Pakistan, really. And with the monsoon coming, and that is really the sad story of the subcontinent, really. We are either sort of swinging between scarcity and plenty. And if we were to collaborate and figure out ways to dam these rivers effectively without really causing problems further down, that we thought would be a very uh, important step forward. If it's such a big problem, why don't we see water as a topic being discussed in the political circles? I was going to ask you how high is it on the priority list, but the way that you have put it, it very evidently seems that if you try and attempt to solve the water problem, there might be many other string of problems that could get resolved. So there are two things. Either it is underreported in the media or that there isn't enough uh, water being provided to this issue. What we found when we discussed it with officials here also, while there are a lot of problems with the water that we share with our neighbors, there are huge problems related to water within the country. Right. So it's just a little you know, unsettling when, when you type in Google, Kaveri water dispute, you get to know so many water disputes that already have been there and they have been pending for a long time. Because your article also says that in other countries like South America, Brazil, they've managed to solve these problems uh, with countries like Paraguay and Argentina. That is across borders. Here we have, like you mentioned, problems of our own. So probably those take priority over cross-border water problems then. Water is a very, very sensitive issue and uh, in fact everybody has been predicting that more and more wars will be fought over water because it would lead to poverty, hunger and wars. I mean that, that sort of water stress, in fact they measure it in terms of uh, quantity of water per person as well and as population pressures grow, particularly in the Indian subcontinent and I include our neighbours there, within Pakistan itself the whole problem of water sharing between Sindh and Punjab has been simmering for a long time with people in Sindh who are lower down in the riparian uh, way think that uh, Punjab is blocking all the water and in India there are so many states which have been fighting for ages with each other on water sharing. So it's an issue that is internal to these two countries particularly because they're so large and external as well within countries. Right and you spoke about wars that could be fought on this and uh, it's, it's very much true because genocide in Sudan that was reported one of the main reasons in those countries like Somalia, Sudan was that adequate water supply was stopped by the warlords there and it, it's a story across many countries. Absolutely. And, and it's also said that water is the new oil which only goes to show that uh, oil itself is a problem and if there is a word called oil in any article the word crisis is not very far behind. So we move on to the next story that, uh, Kuku, you have written. And what is the current situation in India? And why I ask that is because oil industry as such, the prices are not controlled by the market forces in India, but ha what things are happening abroad. Abhishek, water we were talking about earlier, but oil certainly is the more political commodity, the most political of all, if I can say that, because a lot of uh, international strife can be traced down to people trying to 
ensure their energy security. This goes for countries that are energy sufficient as well as people that are energy deprived. Like India imports uh, a bulk of, we import most of the crude oil uh, that we consume. And so we are constantly trying to figure out ways and means on how to redefine our equations with the world. And most of, unfortunately, as they say, most of the oil is in areas that are troubled areas, quote unquote. And it's probably that the areas are troubled and kept troubled because of the oil, really. Maybe, I mean, you know, what we did here is also we broadened the conversation here to not just oil, but energy. So, because we are dependent also on imports of coal, mm-hmm. on ore, that is iron ore, aluminium ore, and even uranium for uh, our nuclear uh, aspirations and nuclear needs. So, the, the article looks at how we are trying to safeguard our energy interests, really, vis-a-vis tying up with uh, different countries. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, going to uh, the extent of tying up with countries like Iran. We've reopened talks on um, natural gas pipeline between Iran and India and importing natural gas at a time that Iran is very much the international pariah and uh, nobody else wants to talk to them. Half the world at least doesn't want to. And in fact, the U.S. is extremely aggressive on this and has uh, even blacklisted countries that have anything to do with Iran. Knowing this well, we've chosen to climb this green pole because we know that uh, we have uh, few options really and, and we have got to keep all these doors open and look at various uh, countries. The other country where we've reopened ties much to the shock of many people is Burma, Myanmar, where uh, military ruler recently visited India because they're sitting on huge gas reserves and we know that they're very close to India and we cannot afford to uh, shut our doors to this. For instance, on energy, we might have to collaborate with some nations that we might otherwise not support in so many other uh, ways. For instance, to Sudan. We are collaborating with Sudan on energy in the sense that we are going to Sudan to find oil and gas. But uh, otherwise, we don't approve of what Sudan is doing in politically. So there are these uh, you know, intricacies there that we hope to really bring out. And I think Dinesh would be able to add more to this. Yeah, but the recent example is probably, you know, this again, foreign policy communities are debating now. America's pullout from Iraq. But there is a lot of speculation on what exactly that pullout means. They are nitpicking in the words which Obama used, where he said that the combat mission is over, but uh, stability mission will continue. Which essentially means that the occupation is not over and about 50,000 American troops will remain in Iraq. And uh, there have been commentaries which have pointed out that during that period, some of these oil majors have got uh, 20-year contracts in Iraq to secure oil supplies. I mean, oil is such a precious uh, resource that people are willing to die for it or kill for it more than die for it. And for a country like India, which imports 70% of its uh, oil, it becomes hugely important that uh, we have our necessary bilateral relationships which ensure that our energy security is not threatened. What we have done, Abhishek, is we have widened this even further and looked at it as uh, energy security and climate change. So both of these things might have really contradictory aims because energy on one hand pollutes, but yet is very necessary. I mean, the planning commission and forecasts have shown that we'll have to increase our energy capability by three to four times in terms of power production 
so this goes to show how much more energy we will need and needing energy means adding to the uh, emissions really there is this whole inclusive growth thing that the government is talking about now and there are vast areas where the maoists are are creating trouble and part of it is is because a lot of uh, these areas have no power and no basic necessities and the government is trying their best to give out packages and to try and include this vast uh, population into the mainstream and part of it is by providing energy so there is no way that we can stop uh, growing and our energy needs would grow and which would mean our carbon dioxide emissions per force have to grow uh, because most of the energy is going to be driven by coal fired power plants a bulk of it about 50 to 60% mm-hmm. and the rest through oil and through other means and we are trying to increase our nuclear uh, uh, energy output so the dynamics of each of them really vis-a-vis uh, india and the world is very very interesting and we have explored that in the story the dynamics of these talks are so complex and every country in the world is involved i mean you are talking about close to 200 countries right and each one has a different interest to protect some of them are developing countries very few of them are developed countries mm-hmm. and uh, since the Uh, political power equations in the world are uh, so skewed towards developed countries and towards one pole which is america it becomes even more difficult so these negotiations become so difficult that it is near to impossible to reach an ideal solution how do you mitigate that or rather in our national interest how do you balance it with the political ambitions we have and how much do we give in a conference like cancun where you will probably try to reach a global consensus on how to tackle climate change but the phrase global consensus sounds more like an oxymoron because it, yeah. it's a pretty difficult thing to expect everything working for all countries and signing on that dotted line because in your finance story that dinesh you have written which is also one of the the essays where in india has got certain things right at least in the the financial regulation industry however uh, there is this g20 that we have been invited into but generally speaking the perception is that it's just a big dinner party for finance ministers to sit there and then they go back and do what they had in mind in the first place so these are the global consensus is very an interesting concept in itself not really that will be a little unfair to say about uh, the g20 forum because ultimately after the crisis of the past uh, two years there is a realization in countries like the us and uk that uh, some of the policies which india followed particularly the reserve bank of india followed which were more conservative vis-a-vis their policies were probably more prudential yes. in times of uh, crisis like this i mean these policies were formulated during the good times right that is not the time when you actually do some belt tightening or stuff like that and at that point of time the rbi had taken a lot of flack for that that you were constricting growth by tightening monetary policy yeah but in as, hindsight it was a good decision because india is in a mess as much as some of the other economies are then yes and it was something which the rbi took very consciously and uh, which stood us in good stead right now that's great and i think on that positive and an optimistic note uh, it's time to wrap up this podcast thank you so much all of you for contributing and joining in thank you thank you abhishek and and just one final question uh, you guys were on it for 3 months and uh, so how was the experience uh, how many sleepless nights if any or how how, how was it 
Kuku, if you could take that up first. <laughs> we had help from some Ikrier papers because a part of this has been done in collaboration with them. So uh, we used those papers as a framework for uh, going ahead on this. But the challenge was really that a lot was changing also on the on the landscape because every day there were new things happening, and and how how we would incorporate all of it and sleepless nights. Yes, lots of them. <laughs> so when Nehru Pandit Nehru said on August fifteenth, forty seven. when the world sleeps india awakes to freedom and generally 15th august whenever arrives for the journalists it's exactly the opposite when the world sleeps you have to have those sleepless nights to get something relevant and exciting for us to read and thank you very much this time and for all you folks out there uh, you can pick up the august 15th independence uh, special issue that will be launched very soon and you can also subscribe to the magazine by just smsing forbes to Five one eight one eight. That's five one eight one eight. And you can get this podcast on theindicast dot com as well as on the Forbes India homepage. That is business dot in dot com. Thank you, Kuku, Udit, and Dinesh again for a wonderful conversation. Sincerely. Thank you, Abhishek.